0: We call scale quail the New Mexico quail species.
1: Well, you're showing preferential treatment then.
0: A little bit. You know, (laughs) when you have a lot of things, you really want to sell that to the other biologists you work with from other states. (laughs) You have to rub something in their faces.
1: Hello, New Mexico. James Pittman here with another edition of the New Mexico Wildlife Podcast. Today we have Game and Fish's Casey Cardinal with us, and we're going to be talking all about resident upland game birds. Casey, thanks for joining us today.
0: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. How long have you been on with Game and Fish?
0: Um, I have been on just over five years. I started in May of 2015, if I remember right. Time kind of seems to fly. Uh, and so before that, I most of my field work and most of my studies were on Upland Game Birds. I just moved to New Mexico from Colorado was my last job, though.
1: And since you've been here, you've been in the same position uh, the entire time?
0: Yes, I have. I love it, and I have no intentions of changing anytime soon.
1: <laughs> and your job title is the resident game bird biologist. Is that right?
0: That is right. But there's also the other title, which is turkey and small game biologist. Since somehow, sometimes we don't exactly know how to classify all the species I cover.
1: So you've got a you got a little lot of different hats that you wear.
0: Yes, for sure.
1: Okay, so let's dive into that a little bit. So what all species do you oversee?
0: So my main species, I would say, are turkey and quail. Uh, they're the, the primary species I work on. But I also cover dusky grouse, which is the only forest grouse we have in the state. Uh, tree squirrels, um, only the harvestable ones. The other squirrels are, are managed by our mammologist, And then I cover pheasants as well
1: okay okay there aren't many
0: of those in the state either
1: (laughs) all right but you got a lot of different species and subspecies that you that you work with so how many i guess how many species of quail and subspecies of turkey are there in the state
0: sure um there are four different species of quail we have the bob the northern bobwhite which we primarily find along the texas border Scale quail are definitely most prevalent across the state. They occur in a lot of the shrubby and short grass prairies we have in the state. Um, so, in the quail world, we call scale quail the New Mexico's quail species.
1: Well, you're showing preferential treatment then?
0: A little bit. You know, when you have a lot of things, you really want to sell that to the other biologists you work with from other states. <laughs> you have to rub something in their faces. <laughs> Um, and we also have Gamble's quail. They're a uh, southwestern species, so you find them mostly in the southwest quarter of the state, uh, a little bit like in the central and up the Rio Grande Valley, and actually up kind of by Farmington too. Uh, and then the Montezuma quail or Mern's quail, as a lot of Arizona hunters call them. Uh, they're mostly found in the southwest mountains of New Mexico, but they actually, their range, the furthest range east is the Guadalupe Mountains, which is the very southeast corner of New Mexico.
1: And Um, so before the show, you were telling me that Montezuma is the correct name.
0: Yeah, the, is it the American Ornithological Society has all the official species names, and Montezuma quail is the official name, but they, they, they're called Merns Quail in Arizona, primarily because the subspecies of Montezuma is the Merns I and you. i I think that Merns was a biologist who officially recognized the Montezuma quail, so it's pretty long lived the name Merns cool,
1: cool. Well, so what about turkeys and subspecies of those?
0: For sure. um, so we have the primary turkey species we have in New Mexico is the Miriam's turkey. They're a very mountainous turkey. And so you'll find them a lot of times in Ponderosa habitats. Um, And then we have the Rio Grande, and that's along a lot of the river bottoms. Uh, We think that it naturally occurred in the state primarily from Texas. So like the Canadians and the Pecos, probably naturally had Rio Grande's and then they've been introduced into a couple of the other river valleys in the state and then finally we have the gould subspecies of turkey which is just the very smallest population is down in the Palencia Mountains and that's the only place that occurs in New Mexico and we think it's pretty exciting because um Arizona, it was extirpated from Arizona, but there, we think there was always at least a remnant population in New Mexico, so we call us the only native uh, <laughs> United States population of Gould's turkeys.
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so basically you have small game and then all of the non-migratory game birds.
0: Right, yes.
1: So what about species that were historically resident game birds but no longer have seasons like prairie chickens and ptarmigan and things like that?
0: Sure, so we actually have a prairie chicken biologist and he is amazing. And so because prairie chicken numbers were low and I think they shut down the season in New Mexico in the 90s, Grant would know that better than I do. Um and so they pulled on a prairie chicken biologist to try and increase numbers and work out with landowners in the eastern portion of the state. Uh, because prairie chickens primarily occur in that area on private land. It's nice to have someone over there who's knowledgeable and, and able to provide collaboration. Um and so he focuses on prairie chickens and then like you said tarm again. Uh I don't think that there was ever a hunting season for ptarmigan, but I'm not positive. In New Mexico? Uh, in New Mexico, yes. There definitely is one in Colorado. Okay. Um And so because ptarmigan are at the very southern extent of their range in New Mexico and and conditions are, are not exactly ideal to have booming populations, there just isn't a ton of alpine habitat, um, <laughs> It's managed a lot more closely and just trying to keep it at a a reasonable population level. So we actually have our terrestrial species recovery coordinator, uh, and he focuses one of his projects on ptarmigan. And so he's been studying them since he started. He started about four and a half years ago. And so he's done a lot of work collaring ptarmigan and and trying to figure out how many are in the state.
1: Well, very cool. Well, it seems, seems like every time I talk to you, you have a different study or a capture or a survey going on. So tell us a little bit about what projects you have going on right now in the resident game bird world.
0: Sure. So our, our probably the most long lived study since I've started is we've been working on Gould's turkeys. And so when I started, Gould's turkeys are actually on the New Mexico like threatened species list. So they're not listed nationally because wild turkeys are actually doing quite well. And it's just a subspecies. Uh, But in New Mexico, because in the 1970s when they started the New Mexico Conservation Act, they didn't really know how many Gould's turkeys were in the state. And all indications were that populations were very low. And so they threw them on the threatened list. And in about 2005, they started to, to do some pretty, well, the surveys became more annual. There had been a couple studies in the 1980s and 1990s on where Gould's turkeys occur. And so in 2005, the department started an annual survey. And so when I started, I took that over. Um, And then because the species are threatened, that species recovery coordinator, he joined me in 2017 and we created a species recovery plan to try and increase Gould turkey's numbers. And then we started to improve the counts um, just changing the time of year and the areas we study and and how we're trying to locate birds. And the most exciting part for us is we started to put GPS backpacks on Gould's wild turkeys in New Mexico to look at their survival, their reproduction, the habitats they're using. And that's really given us so much knowledge going forward as we Work to get the species off the threatened list.
1: So a GPS backpack, how, how does, how does that work?
0: So they look like, they kind of look like a Swiss cake roll. It's about that size. And so it straps onto the back. So it's basically like you're putting a little school backpack on a turkey. <laughs> it loops around the wings and then We have it so that the backpack will upload the turkey's location at certain times of the day. And so when we started our study, we had it uploading a location every single night because where they sleep at night is very important. And then um, morning, afternoon, and evening. And those kind of give us feeding locations and loafing, which is where they hang out in the middle of the day.
1: And so all, are all these birds that you've captured and then released with the transmitter on?
0: Yes. Hmm. Um, yeah, and, and when we started, we thought, I, as a lot of studies go, females tend to drive population dynamics. So we were trying to focus on females at the beginning. And it's really hard to catch a lot of females. And so we threw some backpacks out on males towards the end of the year, which, I mean, has given us so much data that we never knew the habitat that these males use. So that was such a happy coincidence that we ended up backpacking bulls and letting them run around and do what turkeys do.
1: So there are differences in habitat use, and movements uh, between males and females?
0: It seems like there are. We don't have a ton of turkeys, and when you're doing a study, you always want the biggest sample size you can get, so as many turkeys as you can get. And so we had about 22 turkeys to present that have been backpacked and have given us usable data. And it seems like the males may make bigger movements and we're not exactly sure why that is but we've had some males move like from where they were captured 30 miles oh wow and and yeah it's crazy and the females although they'll make smaller movements five to ten miles it's, it's not the same as those huge treks that these males have taken
1: well, wow, that's that's pretty interesting. And and yeah. I think you said, how long have you had these backpack collars on?
0: Our first two females we caught in spring of 2018. So not that if long. If I remember right. No, not that long. And then I think most of the birds were caught in the winter of 2018-2019. Okay. Yeah, so a lot of the backpacks have been out just over a year now.
1: So, ongoing study for sure and plans to continue?
0: Yeah, plans to continue and actually increase. So, with the potential of delisting in the next several to many years, um, there's some interest in a potential hunting situation if if we ever do get the turkeys off the list. It would be very restricted. I'm going to throw that out there right now, but... um, yeah, so we got about twice as many backpacks this year to put out so that we have some really long-term monitoring on these turkeys. Oh, awesome. And luckily, yeah, it's it's so awesome. And um, luckily, there's been so many turkey studies across the U.S., and it really doesn't seem like the backpacks affect survival at all. So that's always good going into a big study like this.
1: For sure, for sure. So what else have you got going on? I know you've done some um roadside surveys lately.
0: Yeah. Um so the roadside surveys are quail surveys and we've been trying I've been trying to set up a roadside survey technique since I started. Uh in the department's history there used to be a, a really big survey effort in the nineteen seventies and when gas prices went through the roof, they, they ended up cutting that. Um I think in the, the really late seventies. And so I I think it's important to have some sort of monitoring on our, our upland birds. It helps us tell hunters or direct hunters what areas are good and what areas maybe to avoid and, and let rest for a year and um it's, it's a nice sell for people coming out of state too. They, there's a lot of hunters who call and, and want to know, uh, if it's worth it. So these roadside surveys, the fall one is basically going out after most of the breeding season is over and trying to figure out how the quail did that year. And so when you're out there, you're looking for broods, you're counting the number of young versus adults you're basically looking at the habitat types they're in and I don't get to see all the habitats anymore. Now that I've been kind of parsing the surveys out to other people in the department, but it really is helpful to know what areas look dry versus healthy and, and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, the, the fall surveys just ended at the end of September so we surveyed the middle of August to the end of September. Uh, we've been trying to hit each route twice, and you can survey either, we've been surveying in the morning or the afternoon, because those are the times of day when quail are most active, and we have the best chance of seeing birds.
1: So what, um, what impacts those surveys each year as to whether it's a good survey or a bad survey? Is it mainly rainfall or, or what, I guess, what's the so biggest influencer?
0: The survey or the number of quail?
1: Well, I guess I was meaning number of quail, but we can talk about either one.
0: Okay. What impacts the number of quail is primarily going to be weather conditions. Um, our our scalies, our scale quail, they tend to be uh, spring and summer rain dependent and so if you have like really light but constant rains like every couple days you get just a nice n- not many inches just like an inch of rain every couple days in the spring or once a week in the spring and then in the summer around June or July like you get a pretty decent monsoon that is going to bump your scale quail numbers up. Just outstanding.
1: So it's more the summer rain?
0: Well, it's a little bit of both. If you get good spring rains, you're going to have four production, which are like little leafy flowering plants. And that's a huge food source for the quail. And if you get heavy spring rains, a lot of scale quails start nesting in April and May. And the heavy spring rain will take a ton of nests out. So that's why we want those light, low rains in the spring, but you still need moisture. And then in summer, the monsoon will boost the ford production again, boost insect production, and that's what the little quail eat. Um, babies will mostly eat insects for their first several weeks of life. And then they'll start switching to those forps as well and seeds. Um, and so if you get a good monsoon, you could potentially get any quail who failed in their first nest, they'll re-nest and get a late hatch out. So you might find waves of when they're a baby quail. So that you're hoping in a good year, you have a really good first wave in May and then a really good second wave in July or August. <laughs> And that is what really boosts quail populations.
1: Okay. Okay. And so we're talking specifically about numbers of quail seen on these fall surveys. And you said specifically fall surveys. So does that mean you do a, a spring or winter we survey do. as well?
0: Yeah. The The spring survey is new. It's the first year we tried it. And so the spring survey is a call count survey. And so when quail are getting ready to breed, the males will call to females in hopes to find a mate. And so we're hitting, we're trying to hit our spring survey on the peak time when males are calling to females. And that gives us a good indication of what birds made it through the winter. So we're hoping that there was pretty good overwinter survival. And so the call count will indicate how many birds there are going into the breeding season. Um, and it also gives us a better idea of quail distribution across the landscape. Since when you see coveys, you're right on the road and it's hard to see them off in the distance. But you can hear quail calling for about a quarter of a mile if you're lucky and conditions are right. So if you're, if we're doing the spring survey, we know that there are quail, even if they're not by the road. And then the fall survey, we can kind of estimate how all the quail are doing in that general area based on the production we see from the roadside.
1: Very cool. Very cool. So I know that we don't have a lot of pheasants in New Mexico, but you do something similar with pheasants too, right? You've had a participated in a roadside survey as part of a a national effort
0: yes like you said we we really don't have a, a a strong pheasant population here and um part of our our decision to participate in the effort was because they're looking at quail too but i'll come back to that so there's a student in iowa state and he is trying to test some of the assumptions that they've had about pheasant surveys in the nation. And so out east, where there's actually um lots of pheasants and, and these strong grassland habitats, like really healthy grass cover, tall to midgrass prairie, Um the thought was that dew, like morning dew, really predicted how many pheasants you would see on a route so on days of heavy dew there was some thought that birds would be more on the road because they didn't want to get all wet and get all their chicks wet and so um we new mexico and some of the other western states we don't have a, a strong dew component. We we get it on some days, but not quite like they do out in Iowa and in Kansas. So we contributed a route as as maybe a more dry condition. And luckily we did see pheasants on the route, but not quite like they were seeing out east, which sure. I, I think based on our relative population numbers, that sounds about right. So, That's
1: pretty cool, though, to be able to see the differences between here and there.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And so for his study as well, he was looking at a couple other species. And so our route ended up being right on the New Mexico, Texas border because he was looking at bobwhite as well, which is um, a species of concern across a lot of its range. It's it's not doing great. Um, and so I know a lot of states are really interested in bobwhite, and I figured if we could help contribute some bobwhite information, that would be good for everyone.
1: Well, so speaking of graduate student projects and and studies and that kind of thing, I I think it's finished now. But there was a a quail project that you were helping out on um, in the in the southeast part of the state. That was a graduate graduate student project, right?
0: Yeah. Um, w- we didn't provide a lot of help, but we have provided equipment. And so Kira Kaufman uh, was a graduate student out of Oklahoma State. Her professor, her major advisor was Dwayne Elmore, who is an amazing biologist. Um, anyways, they were studying scale quail habitat use um, in just out east of Roswell on some BLM land. And so... Uh, A lot of their studies lately have been focusing on thermal environment and how the thermal landscape will affect quail and, and other upland game habitat use. And so in Oklahoma, they had done some thermal research on bobwhite and turkey. And out here, they wanted to look at scale quail and their thermal use. So Kira was putting tiny little radio collars on quail. And you're able to take um, telemetry equipment and find those birds. And so she was looking at how they were nesting uh, or where they were nesting. And she would put little thermal eye buttons that, that measure temperature, like they're a temperature logger. And so she was putting out eye buttons near the nest site I know that there were some in the adjacent area to the nest site and some thermal loggers at random locations as well. And so she was comparing thermal temperatures at nests to random and then at broods to non-brooding adults uh and trying to figure out if there were differences. And so it was really a neat study Um she ended up finding that a lot of times the nest site is better protected against temperature lows and highs since, I mean, anyone who's been out in southeastern New Mexico in the middle of summer knows that it gets real hot. Uh, and so this protects the nesting hen or male a little bit better than uh, that, that nest site, than just a random spot on the landscape.
1: Okay. Okay. And I, I assume, because she just finished up uh, not that long ago, right? So I assume uh, probably hasn't had any publications or anything come out of this yet?
0: I don't think yet. You're right. She, if I remember right, she just defended in May, April or May this year. Okay. Um, and so I saw her, her thesis, but I'm sure that they'll try and get a couple publications out.
1: Sure. Sure. Well, this kind of is switching subjects just a little bit, but it popped in my head while you were talking about it. So <laughs> we've talked about little transmitters on quail. We've talked about transmitters on turkey and that kind of thing. So if if somebody is out hunting and they harvest um, an animal with a transmitter, should they bring it to your attention? I mean, I know on larger callers, there's a phone number and that kind of thing. I assume on a transmitter that would fit on a, a quail there's not a lot of room to write
0: there's not um uh, yeah if you ever harvest a a marked bird and so it'll either have a transmitter and every single bird we catch pretty much has a band a leg band on it okay and so yeah if you ever harvest a, a marked bird it's just great information for us. If you want to call the department, if there's no number, just call the the general hotline. And if you say quail or turkey, they're going to transfer you to me. And so, yeah, it's not an issue. These birds are out there on the landscape. They're okay to harvest. We are just interested in knowing when they are. For sure.
1: Awesome. Well, just wanted to, kind of throw that in there, but jumping back into, <laughs> into projects. Um, so, and it may be kind of a, an older project at this point, but in addition to jumping back to turkeys, in addition to the Gould's Turkey project, mm-hmm. um, wasn't that long ago, you were doing some, some other captures in other areas throughout the state. Um, is that kind of over? And can you tell us a little bit about what was going on there?
0: Sure. Um no it it's not over uh actually. Um so in areas where primarily Miriam's summerios are overabundant, uh so near a town per se, they they can start to cause problems if there's a lot of turkeys in an area. They tend to congregate in very large groups, especially in the winter. And they'll all, like, sleep in the same tree, a roost tree. Uh And so if a house is under that roost tree, that could potentially be a lot of turkey dropping <laughs> in an area. And so, and and in the winter, they'll feed together in these large groups, too. So they could be taking a lot of grass on, let's say, a golf course. And so we try and help. In in the situation where we can and in a situation where we might need birds in another part of the state, we'll try and help those people out by trapping birds in overabundant populations. And we like to move them into areas where turkeys historically occurred and where there's been some habitat work. So there, there's usually a reason why there aren't birds in an area anymore. But if they're trying to return conditions to a more favorable state for turkeys, we'll put birds there. So uh, our our main trap site lately has been up in Raton. Turkey numbers are really strong there. And so we've been moving birds from Raton um, and we moved them to the Guadalupe Mountains and we've been moving them out, out west now, too. So.
1: Okay. Do, do these birds that you move, are they marked or, or backpack-colored in any way?
0: Yeah, they're marked. All Like I said, all the turkeys we handle get a leg band. Um, and then the the turkeys we moved to the Guadalupe Mountains, they had VHF transmitters. So like the quail, you can use equipment, equipment. To listen for beeps they don't send signals to us to the satellite like the Gould's turkeys do but you can get out on the ground where they are and listen to see if they're alive or dead and then based on the like strength of the signal you can kind of figure out where they are on the landscape too um and so yeah the, those turkeys did and then out west we we marked all the birds and we actually were collaborating with the BLM in Acoma Pueblo, uh, and, and Acoma Pueblo, and and had had put some backpacks out on turkeys that were released out west. So
1: okay, and and the VHF ones are those not backpacks? Are those a little different?
0: Um, no, they still are backpacks. Sorry, on turkeys, okay. that's just the easiest way to to put a transmitter of any type on a bird okay. on our other upland birds most of the time you put a little necklace on them because VHF actually can be really small transmitters that that shoot a signal pretty far uh and and that's the easiest way and the lightest way to put it for sure on a quail but now with the advent of these GPS transmitters most of them are backpack. And for a lot of birds there's actually solar on them. Oh, and wow. so that's the best way, yeah, to get sun and and you get really extended battery life if there's solar on these backpacks.
1: Wow. And that but but the quail in general is is a is a more of a necklace.
0: Yeah, always a necklace. I just saw some pictures of GPS quail in Oklahoma and they're putting little backpacks on them itty-bitty backpack. Wow. <laughs> so That's yeah probably
1: a small backpack
0: <laughs> it's really small <laughs> i mean you never want your transmitter of any type to be more than three percent of the animal's body weight otherwise that will start to affect survival so if you think of how small a quail is three percent of a quail's body weight at most is, is very small
1: yeah for sure well so we've talked about quail projects and we've talked about pheasant and we've talked about turkey and we you mentioned earlier on a little bit about uh the ptarmigan project Mm -hmm. is there anything going on with uh with grouse
0: so a couple of our wildlife areas up north are having habitat treatments done so yuraka and colin Niblet. Uh, Colin Niblett was treated. And so when I started, we were getting out and we were doing transects looking for grouse sign, which mostly means you're walking in a line looking for grouse poop, um, and, and feathers if you're lucky enough to find feathers. And so we were trying to figure out if they were using the areas of treatment. And then Uraka, we knew that they were scheduling a treatment. And so we went into the area before they did the treatment and I think the treatment was primarily thinning, and so we were doing those transects in the areas that were going to be treated. And so, uh, we have for Uraka a couple years of pre treatment data. I think they were starting the thinning this year, and so I'm looking forward to getting out next year and, and the year after and seeing if there's a change in, in where we're finding sign and then, um. Colin Nibletson, so it was already treated. It's just interesting to see what areas they're using in the treatment. And I'm hoping in the next couple of years to get outside some of those treated areas and look for a sign as well. And so um, the other grass project that I've I started up this year and I'm really interested in, uh, a, an officer out of TRC actually approached me about grouse numbers in the Gila. And he's really interested in that area. And that is the southernmost extent of dusky grouse range in the United States. Wow. Yeah, the Gila. (laughs) And it's really just out there compared to their other locations. And so... With all the fires that have went on, there, there is some concern that there's been range contraction and we were interested in if there are still birds at all and how those birds are doing. So this summer we started to do some transects in the Gila in what I would classify as, as dusky grouse habitat. Um, just to see if we could find birds at all and, and see how many we were able to count. So we have a lot more areas to, to get out and look at but it just I I mean I knew a lot of the fires down there were very large, but getting out on the landscape and, and looking for birds and seeing how much area has been burned, it really is shocking to see the extent of some of the fires. Um so.
1: Yeah, sure. Sure. Well, it sounds like all across the board there's a lot of a lot of good things going on in the in the upling resident game bird world
0: there are a lot of exciting things it's it, it's always great to start a new project and and get more data since there's so many unknowns about upland game birds in general a lot of the studies on on these species were conducted back in the 70s and 80s and technology and and what we know about them like it's advanced but like with technology we can learn so much more now and it's really exciting
1: yeah i bet i bet well so talking about all these different game bird species kind of makes me want to go hunting so (laughs) (laughs) let's switch gears just a little bit and talk about the different seasons for these different species so let's start with uh grouse season since that's currently underway Mm -hmm. um so when is grouse season and what is the back limit on that
0: sure grouse season opens september 1st uh and and i'm gonna throw out there as well i don't do a lot of work on on squirrels yet but they also fall under my my position and that opens on september 1st as well and those seasons both run through november 30th Um, grouse, you're allowed three grouse per day and six total in your possession. So if you hunt multiple days, you should only have six in your freezer when you get home and then squirrel, you're allowed to take eight per day and then have 16 total in your possession.
1: Okay. Okay. And another species that we haven't really talked about, but I, I see it in the, in the Upland Game Regulation book is uh, the Eurasian collared dove.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's definitely not a a point of pride to have that in my program. (laughs) So Eurasian collared doves are actually a non-native species uh, that have expanded across the United States. Um, They are a little bit bigger than a morning dove, so sometimes you'll see them harassing morning doves uh, out of some of the habitat around towns. Um, and since they're non-native and they're not really a desirable, they're actually open all year long, uh, April 1st to March 31st every single year. And there's no limit to the number of Eurasian collar doves you can take. So okay. you can take as many as you want. The thing is, though, uh, if there are other doves in your area, morning doves or white wing or, or Inca doves, you just need to be very careful to make sure you're taking Eurasian collar doves if you're hunting outside the dove season.
1: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's due to the fact that they are a non-native species.
0: Yes. And unlike a lot of our doves, so most of our doves will migrate south, um Eurasians don't really migrate, so they they are what we would consider a resident bird. And so, a lot of times, if you the other doves have left, you can hunt Eurasians without concern.
1: Okay. Well, that makes sense. hmm So, going into pheasants. And again, I know mm-hmm. we don't have very many of those, but it looks like there are several different options. There's an over-the-counter season. There's a draw hunt. Let's talk about over-the-counter first.
0: Sure. Um... So, like you said, not that many. So, the season is pretty short. We actually have just a four-day season in December, December 10th through the 13th this year. Uh And so, you are allowed three pheasants per day, six in possession. Um If you are interested in hunting pheasants, most of them are going to occur in those river valleys where there is a... Potentially an agricultural aspect to the landscape. Um, They occur in kind of wetland marshy areas, too, at the edge of, like, a wetland marsh where there's cattails. Those are some areas where you might get into pheasants in the state.
1: And then on some private lands, it looks like there's a a little bit of a, a different season on that.
0: Yeah, for Valencia County, um, That is only private land hunting and that is only open one day every year. And so if you know a landowner in Valencia County who has pheasants, you're going to have to work with them to make sure that you can hunt on their property and that they have went through. I think that they have to apply to the Albuquerque office. Just call the office in Albuquerque. Okay.
1: Sounds good. And then moving into draw hunts, there are some draw hunting opportunities.
0: Yeah. So the the draw hunt, there are two youth pheasant hunts, which the department uses as a kind of outreach to get young hunters into to upland hunting. So there's one on Bernardo Wildlife Area and then one down by Artesia on the W.S. Huey Wildlife Area. And those are just one day each. uh I think the Bernardo Hunt has twenty permits, and the Huey Hunt has forty um They're both managed really well the The officers in that area have been awesome about um uh, organizing with the hunters and typically there's well for since I've started, and I'm sure long before I started, the department will actually release um birds on those wildlife areas before the kids come so that there's plenty of opportunity so um, it, it tends to be a pretty fun hunt and then um, there is a second draw hunt on the huey after the week after the kids hunt there's an adult hunt so um, adult hunters can come in and kind of clean up what's left over from the release birds and and there's some wild birds in that area uh, that they can get into as well.
1: Awesome. Awesome. And and then there's a mention of uh, uh, the Bitter Lake pheasant hunt. Is that a uh, more of a federally managed hunt?
0: It is. Yep. That's run on the wildlife area. And so they deal with everything from the permits to the, to working with the kids. So if you're interested in hunting Bitter Lake's, call them for the information
1: okay well that moves us into quail
0: uh yeah so quail is is my biggest sell for small game hunting in the state there's so much public land there's tons of area where quail occur it's it's just a really good time and it's so easy for people to get out and try. And so um, quail season opens November 15th, closes February 15th. Oh, and something I should have mentioned when I started talking about small game seasons, a lot of the seasons are the same from year to year. So quail, dusky grouse, squirrel, those are all going to be this and and collar dove all the same time period every single year.
1: Okay, so they um, don't shift like, like they, some of the other hunts.
0: Exactly, okay. yeah. So the ones that are really specialized around a weekend, the draw hunts and the pheasant season, those will switch just to make sure they're on either the first weekend of the month or, or something like that. But the nice thing about the other seasons that don't move is it's easy to remember that, that every year, November 15th, quail is going to open. Okay. So, so you're allowed... 15 quail per day, if, if you're a good shot and you can find birds. I have never even gotten close to that. <laughs> um, and so that could be a combination of 15 scalies alone or five scalies, five bob whites, five gambles, something like that. If, if you want to travel hunt, um, but never more than five Montezuma quail.
1: Okay, so that's the only one with a sublimit within the limit.
0: It is, yep.
1: Awesome. Well, um, since we're on the topic of quail, I want to dive into that a little deeper. But before we do that, just wanted to remind people that all of these uh, season dates, bag limits, and other rules and information are in the 2020 Upland Games rules and information booklet, which is on our website wildlife.state.nm.us, and then under the home button in the upper left-hand corner is the uh, a publications tab, and so we would click on that publications tab, and that would bring up all of those different regulation books, and again, this one uh, would be the upland game book. So diving more into quail season, so we've talked about your roadside surveys in the spring and fall, and how those are done, and a little bit about how moisture impacts those. Um mm-hmm. and we've talked about quail season, so let's kinda go into more of a a quail season forecast for twenty twenty. Let's cover some basics first. So so dividing the state into four quarters, mm-hmm. um are quail found in all quarters of the state?
0: Yes. To varying degrees um the the northern half of the state populations aren't going to be as dense as they are in the southern half of the state so if if you really want to get into a lot of birds and i i would recommend starting in the south if you are in the north and you know a really good area and you've hunted there every year just do your thing keep going there that's fine but uh, in general, if you want to hunt a lot of habitat and a good number of birds, the southern part. And so if we're going into quarters, then the southeast has been the the highest quail densities for the last couple of years. Okay. Uh, in 2015, I was talking about those amazing weather conditions back when we were talking about quail reproduction. That happened in 2015 and there was a huge quail boom and there were quail just crawling all over the landscape. And so as we've kind of, we haven't had as ideal weather the last several years, but we're still coming off that high. So there's a lot of residual birds on the landscape. Um, and so it's it's going to be primarily scale quail there. They, they were the ones that had that amazing boom. Uh, as you get closer to Texas, could get into some bobwhites. But yeah, if you want to know more specifics about quail, like habitats and what to focus on, I can go into that.
1: Yeah, let's, because you talked a little bit about the scale quail and then moving into bobwhites. So let's, let's talk about, uh, like you said, habitat preferences and then differences in, in the range of these, of these different, um, different species. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Scale quail, um, are are pretty brush oriented. So when quail flush, they're going to want to go to some sort of protective cover. So a good rule of thumb when you're looking for a scale quail is if you had a baseball, you'd want to be able to throw the baseball and have shrubs from where you are to the baseball in any like a, a direction. So there's got to be that many shrubs on the landscape that no matter where you are, you could throw a baseball and be near shrubs. Okay. And so scale quail are notorious runners. So if you're going to see them, they're going to start sprinting. And so not only do you need shrubs, but you need pretty good amounts of open area on the ground because they're going to need those pathways to run. So you're looking at something that's not, too dense with grasses and and shrubs but dense enough that you have shrubs for them to fly to if they're going to fly and open areas for them to run. And so the interesting thing about quail and this is coming out in a lot of studies so if you're looking for a spot to start your hunt I would recommend starting around a water source so quail will congregate more around water sources, even though the research shows that survival is not any better for quail that are found r- around water versus out in the middle of nowhere with no no artificial water. Et cetera, but same. for some reason, they want to congregate more around that water source. Okay. So. Yeah. So when I'm out hunting, I look, if I see a windmill, I start there. The other areas that I start is if I'm going and I see a draw that has just a little bit more dense shrub cover, I start there. Those are a couple good like starters for scale quail.
1: Okay. So, so what about moving into some of the other species? What about say gambles quail? How, how is their habitat uh, selection different than the scaled quail?
0: Well, gambles quail are even more shrub-oriented than, than scaled quail are. And so out west, I definitely look for drainages to start my gamble search. Those are a lot thicker shrub cover. And the, the gambles quail are actually often found in areas with mesquite, uh, it's a shrub that's commonly found in Arizona and New Mexico, but they're pretty associated with mesquite habitat and then acacia, which is a very thorny bush. So if you're hunting gamble quail, look for really pokey, thick bushes. <laughs> <All> <laughs> that's right. their habitat type and they are not quite as much runners. So like I said, just look for that, that thick stuff. Um, and, and gamble squail, you're gonna find them mostly in the Southwest, and this is just a little cell. But Arizona is having, well, what they call an epic gambles quail reproduction year because gambles quail really rely on winter moisture, and we've had a couple really good, like n- nice precip winters the last couple of years. And so in in New Mexico, I was finding on on the fall survey really good numbers of gambles quail pretty close to arizona okay. so yeah if if i was going to recommend to people i'd hunt those counties pretty close to the arizona border
1: okay and that's specifically for for gambles
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then now moving the other direction you said the bob whites are more um, in those counties that are Adjacent to Texas,
0: exactly. Direct opposite side of the state. Bobwhite—they—they um, <laughs> they need some shrub cover, but they really need bunch grasses. That tends to be their their nesting habitat. And so, you're looking for clumpy grasses. A lot of times, that means blue stems or, or like sand drop seed or side oats grama. Um, you're looking for those clumpy grasses that haven't been. Two grays down since they, they need that as hiding cover and they eat the seeds from those. And then likely in like a sand sage habitat, maybe shinnery oak as well, th- those types of shrubs. Bob whites won't use mesquite as much as scale quail do. They, they will some, but uh, scale quail will use that a lot more. So when you're looking for bob white, definitely look for that grass cover. With some shrubs.
1: Okay. Okay. And then moving into the Montezuma or the, the Merns quail, mm-hmm. where do you look for those?
0: They're going to be the only quail that you start searching around a mountain. Okay. And so, yeah. <laughs> so they, they really need grass cover. And so when you're looking for Montezuma habitat, I tell people if the grass is hitting the middle of your calf, that's good. Um, and then you're looking for tree cover as well. And these are the only quail that I say actually like trees. Most quail are terrified of trees because a lot of their predators will hide mm-hmm. in a tree and wait to see them. And so Montezuma quail, you want trees. So you're actually looking for either junipers or pinions at about 30% on the landscape. So not super dense. So you still have that really good grass cover, but just some trees in the area. And then Montezuma quail, they uh, eat roots. And so they're going to eat like wild onion and and tubers, which are Basically a big bulb in the ground. And so if you're walking up a hill and you see lots of tiny little digs and you see wild onion, that's a good sign that you're probably in Montezuma quail habitat. Okay. Um, and yeah. And the amazing thing about Montezuma quail is even though you find them a lot of times in pinion juniper habitats with grass in Arizona, people have reported seeing them at like 10,000 feet in Ponderosa grassland habitats. Oh, wow. So they can get really high up in elevation. But I tell people to maybe focus more on that like seven, 8,000 feet landscape to start with.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. So So if you're planning a trip for 2020, you're going to want to, in general, start in the southern half of the state. And then, where mm-hmm. you go from there is gonna depend be dependent on which species it is you're looking to go after,
0: definitely mhm okay yeah and and if you're I know that there are extremely ambitious people out there who do all four species and power to you if that's you, but if it was me, I would recommend starting in the southeast and heading to the southwest,
1: okay. <laughs> Okay, so southeast for higher numbers um, Mm -hmm. and southwest because of a better Gamble's quail year.
0: Yes. So even though there are higher numbers in the southeast this year, I am going to throw out that the weather conditions weren't ideal. Uh, So reproduction was probably average at best, which means that there are still birds on the landscape. If you've come the last couple of years, there are still birds out there. There might not be as many coveys you're flushing this year. But okay. what we were seeing on the survey was, even though there maybe weren't as many coveys, the coveys were still decent size. So 15 okay. plus birds. So, I mean, awesome. I think it could still be an okay year. It's just going to be a little bit more trekking around looking for birds. Sure.
1: Sure. Well, awesome. Well, now we know a little bit more about what to expect this quail season, a little Mm -hmm. bit more about Upland and Resident Game Bird seasons and bag limits, and then about the Resident Game Bird program as a whole and all the different projects that you have going on. You've got your hands going a lot of different directions.
0: (laughs) Yes, we do. It's good to keep busy. (laughs)
1: I sure appreciate you taking the time to to join us and, and chat with us a little bit.
0: Of course, I'm I'm happy to do it. Hopefully, I didn't confuse anyone, and if I did, you can absolutely call me to talk more about quail or ask questions about upland birds or, or turkeys. We're, we're here and available for the public, so we want to make sure that folks are excited and, and know everything they want to know about the birds in the state.
1: Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you again, and thank you all for tuning in and listening today. Be sure and check out our other podcasts and the New Mexico Wildlife Digital Magazines and the Monthly Newsletters. And get outside and enjoy all the outdoor recreation opportunities New Mexico has to offer. See you next time.